Chapter Sixteen, Part Two of Vandover and the Brute. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adam Wybray. Vandover and the Brute by Frank Norris. Chapter Sixteen, Part Two. On the evening of a certain Thanksgiving day, nine months after he had sold the house, Vandover came in through the ladies' entrance of the Imperial, going slowly down the passageway, looking into the little rooms on his right for Ellis or the dummy. There had been a great intercollegiate football game that day, and Vandover, remembering that he had once found an interest in such things, had at first determined to see it. But toward eleven o'clock in the morning the rain had begun to fall, and Ellis, who was to have gone with him, declared that he did not care enough about the game to go out to it in the rain. Vandover was disappointed. He fancied that he could have enjoyed the game, as much as he could enjoy anything of late, but he hated to go to places alone. In the end, however, he resolved to go whether Ellis went or not. It was a holiday. Vandover had Ellis and the dummy to lunch with him at the hotel, where they arranged the menu of a famous Thanksgiving dinner for that evening. They would meet in one of the little rooms of the Imperial and go from there to the restaurant. As they were finishing their lunch, Vandover said, I got a new kind of liqueur yesterday. Has a colour like violets and smells like cologne. You fellows better come up to my room and try it. I've got to go up and change anyway. If I go out to that game. They all went up to Vandover's cheerless room and Ellis began to argue with Vandover against the folly of going anywhere in the rain. You don't want to go to that game, Van. Just look how it's raining. I bet there won't be a thousand people there. They'll probably postpone the game anyway. Say, this is queer-looking stuff. What do you call it? Creme violette. The dummy set down his emptied liquor glass on the mantel shelf and nodded approvingly at Vandover. Then he scribbled, Out of sight. On his tablet. Tastes like cough syrup and alcohol, growled Ellis, scowling and sipping. I think a pile of this would make the dummy talk Dutch. Keep it up, dummy, he continued, articulating distinctly so that the other could catch the movement of his lips. Drink some more, make you talk. Vandover was cutting the string around a pasteboard box that had just come from his tailor's. It was a new suit of clothes, rough cheviot brown of small checks. He dressed slowly and tipped forward the swinging mirror of the bureau to see how the trousers set. Meanwhile, Ellis and the dummy had got out the cards and chips from the drawer of the centre table and had begun a game. Better change your mind, Van, said Ellis, without raising his eyes from the cards. No, sir, answered Van. You don't know how it is. You never were a college man. Why, I wouldn't miss a football game for anything. Talk about your horse racing, talk about your baseball. I tell you, there's nothing in the world so exciting as a hot football game. He swung into his long, high-coloured waterproof and stood behind Ellis, watching his game for a moment while he tied a couple of long silk streamers to his umbrella handle. It's one of the college colours, he explained. Seems like old times back at Harvard. Ellis snorted with contempt. Such kids, he growled. I saw one of the coaches go down the street a little while ago, continued Vandover, still watching Ellis shuffle and deal. 
There were about twenty college men on top, and they had a big bulldog all harnessed out in their colours, and they were blowing fish horns, and I tell you, it made me wish I was one of them again. Ellis did not answer. It was probable he did not hear. Both he and the dummy were settling down for a game that no doubt would last all the afternoon. Vandover made them free of his room, and they often gambled there when he went away. But it invariably made Ellis nervous to have anyone stand behind his chair while he was playing. He began to move about uneasily. By and by he looked at his watch. Better get a move on, he said. You'll be late. Just a minute, answered Vandover, more and more interested in the game. I'll go on playing, don't bother about me. Oh, I saw Charlie Geary too, he continued. On another coach, there was a party of them. Charlie was with Turner Ravis on the box seat. You remember Turner Ravis, don't you, Bandy? The girl I used to go with. Hmm, there's a girl I never liked, observed Ellis. She always struck me as being one of these regular snobs. Ah, snob is no name for it, assented Vandover. She thought she was too damned high-toned for me. As soon as I got into that mess about Ida Wade, she threw me out. No, she didn't want to be associated with me any longer. <laughs> well, she can go to the devil. Geary's welcome to her. I thought Dolly Waite was going to marry her, said Ellis. What was the matter there? I don't know, returned Vandover. Probably Dolly Haite didn't have enough money to suit her. Guess she wants a man that'll make his pile in this town and make his way too. Ha! <laughs> you bet. Half an hour later, he was still behind Ellis's chair. Ellis had become so fidgety that he was losing steadily. Once more, he turned to Vandover, speaking over his shoulder. Come on. Come on, Van. Go along to your football. It made me nervous standing there. Vandover pushed a ten-dollar gold piece across the table to the dummy, who was banking, and said... Give me that in chips. I'm coming in. I thought you were going to the game, inquired Ellis. Ah, the devil, answered Vandover. Too much rain. They had played without interruption all that afternoon, and for once Vandover had all the luck. When they broke up about five o'clock, with the understanding to meet again in the Imperial at seven, he had won nearly a hundred dollars. When Vandover went out to keep this appointment, he found the streets especially Kearney and Market Streets, crowded. It was about half-past six. The football game was over and the college men had returned. They were everywhere, marching about in long files, chain-gang fashion, each file headed by a man beating upon a gong, or parading the sidewalks ten abreast, singing college songs or shouting their slogan. At every moment one heard the college yells answering each other from street corner to street corner. Rah, rah, rah! Roar, roar, roar! Vandover found the Imperial crowded with students. The barroom was packed to the doors. Every one of the little rooms in the front hall was full, while Flossie and Nanny had a great party of the young fellows in one of the larger rooms in the rear. Among the crowd of the barroom, three members of the winning team, heroes with bandages about their heads, were breaking, training, smoking and drinking for the first time in many long weeks and most of the college men were gathered into the hotels and cafes eating dinner. About an hour later they would reappear again for a moment on their way to the theatre, which they were to attend in a body. But Vandover suddenly discovered that he could not eat a mouthful. The smell of food revolted him, and little by little an irregular twitching had overcome his hands and forearms. He had received a great shock. 
that same evening, as he was leaving the hotel, the clerk at the office had handed him some letters that had accumulated in his box. Vandover could never think to ask for his mail in the morning as he went in to breakfast. Something was surely wrong with his head of late. Every day he found it harder and harder to remember things. There were three letters altogether. One was the tailor's bill, mailed the same day that his last suit had been finished. A second was an advertisement announcing the near opening of the Sutro baths that were building at that time. And the third, a notice from the bank calling his attention to the fact that his account was overdrawn by some sixty dollars. At first, Vandover did not see the meaning of this notice, and thrust it back in his pocket together with the tailor's bill. Then slowly, an idea struggled into his mind. Was it possible that he no longer had any money at the bank? Was his fifteen thousand gone? From time to time, his bank book had been balanced, and invariably, during the first days of each month, his cheques had come back to him, used and crumpled, covered with strange signatures and stamped in blue ink. But after the first few months, he never paid the least attention to these. He never kept accounts, having a veritable feminine horror of figures. But it was absurd to think that his money was gone. Pshaw! One could not spend fifteen thousand in nine months. It was preposterous. This notice was some technicality that he could not understand. He would look into it the next day. And so he dismissed the wearisome matter from his mind with a shrug of his shoulders, as though ridding himself of some troublesome burden. However, the idea persisted. Somehow, between the lines of the printed form, he smelt out a fresh disaster. He read it over again and again. All at once, as he stood in the doorway of the hotel, turning up the collar of his waterproof and watching the little pools in the hollows of the asphalt pavement to see if it were still raining, the conviction came upon him. In a second he knew that he was ruined. The true meaning of the notice became apparent with the swiftness of a great flash of light. He had spent his fifteen thousand dollars. The blow was strong enough, sudden enough to penetrate even Vandover's clouded and distorted wits. His nerves were gone in a minute. A sudden stupefying numbness fell upon his brain, and the fear of something unknown, the immense unreasoning terror that had gripped him for the first time the morning after Ida Wade's suicide, came back upon him, horrible, crushing so that he had to shut his teeth against a wild, hysterical desire to rush through the streets, screaming and waving his arms. By the time the three friends had reached the restaurant where they were to eat their Thanksgiving dinner, Vandover's appetite had given place to a loathing of the very smell of food. His nervousness was fast approaching hysteria. The little nerve clusters all over his body seemed to be crisping and writhing like balls of tiny serpents. At intervals he would twitch sharply, as though startled at some sudden noise, his breath coming short, his heart beating quick. They had their dinner in one of the private rooms of the restaurant on the second floor. All through the meal, Vandover struggled to keep himself in hand, fighting with all his strength against this reappearance of his old enemy, this sudden return of the dreadful crisis, determined not to make an exhibition of himself before the others. He pretended to eat, and forced himself to talk, joining in with Ellis, who was badgering the dummy about Flossie. The proper thing to do was to fill the dummy's glass while his attention was otherwise absorbed, and, in the end, to get him so drunk that he could talk. 
Toward the end of the dinner, Ellis was successful. All at once, the dummy got upon his feet. His eyes were glazed with drunkenness. He swayed about in an irregular circle, holding up, now by the table, now by the chair back, and now by the wall behind him. He was very angry, exasperated beyond control by Ellis's railery and abuse. He forgot himself, and uttered a series of peculiar cries, very faint and shrill, like the sounds of a voice heard through a telephone when some imperfection of transmission prevents one from distinguishing the words. His mouth was wide open, and his tongue rolled about in an absurd way between his teeth. Now and then one could catch a word or two. Ellis went into spasms of laughter, holding his sides, gasping for breath. Vandover could not help being amused, and the two laughed at the dummy's stammering rage until their breath was spent. Throughout the rest of the evening, the dummy recommenced from time to time, rising unsteadily to his feet, shaking his fists, pouring out a stream of little ineffectual bird-like twitterings, trying to give Ellis abuse for abuse, trying to talk long after it had ceased to amuse the other two. Ellis had been drinking for nearly six hours, without the liquor producing the slightest effect upon him. Long since the dummy was hopelessly drunk, and now Vandover, who had been drinking upon an empty stomach, began to grow very noisy and boisterous. Little by little Ellis himself commenced to lose his self-control. By and by he and Vandover began to sing, each independent of the other, very hoarse and loud. The dummy joined them, making a hideous and lamentable noise, which so affected Ellis that he pretended to howl at it like a little dog overcome by mournful music. But suddenly Ellis had an idea, crying out thickly between two hiccups. Hey there, Van, do your dog act for us. Go on, bark for us. By this time Vandover was very nearly out of his head, his drunkenness finishing what his nervousness had begun. The attack was fast approaching culmination. Strange and unnatural fancies began to come and go in his brain. Go on, Van, urged Ellis, his eyes heavy with alcohol. Go on, do your dog act. All at once, it was as though an angry dog were snarling and barking over a bone there under the table about their feet. Ellis roared with laughter, but suddenly he himself was drunk. All the afternoon he had kept himself in hand. Now his intoxication came upon him in a moment. The skin around his eyes was purple and swollen. The pupils themselves were contracted. They grew darker, taking on the colour of bitumen. Suddenly he swept glasses, plates, caster, knives, forks, and all from off the table with a single movement of his arm. Then the alcohol overcame him all in an instant like a poisonous gas. He swayed forward in his chair and fell across the stripped table, his head rolling inertly between his outstretched arms. He did not move again. In a neighbouring room, young Haight had been dining with some college fellows, fraternity men, all friends of his, upon whose coach he had ridden to and from the game. He had heard Vandover and Ellis in the room across the hall, and had recognised their voices. Haight had never been a friend of Ellis, but no one, not even Turner, had grieved more over Vandover's ruin than had his old-time college chum. Young Haight heard the noise of the falling crockery as Ellis swept the table clear, and turned his head sharply, listening. There was a moment's silence after this, and Haight, fearing some accident had happened, 
stepped out into the hall and stood there a moment listening again, his head inclined toward the closed door. He heard no groaning, no exclamations of pain, not even any noise of conversation. Only through the closed door came a steady sound of barking. Puzzled, he tried the door, and, finding it locked as he had expected, put one foot upon the knob, and, catching hold of the top jam, raised himself up and looked down through the open space that answered for a transom. The room was very warm, the air thick with the smell of cooked food, the fumes of whisky and the acrid odour of cigar smoke. Ellis had rolled from his chair and lay upon the floor, sprawling on his face in the wreck of the table. Near to him, likewise upon the floor, but sitting up, his back against the wall, was the dummy. He was muttering incessantly to himself, as if delighted at having found his tongue, his head swaying on his shoulders, and a strange murmur, soft, bird-like, meaningless, like sounds heard from a vast distance, coming from his wide open mouth. Vandover was sitting bolt upright in his chair, his hands gripping the table, his eyes staring straight before him. He was barking incessantly. It was evident that now he could not stop himself. It was like hysterical laughter, a thing beyond his control. Twice, young White called him by name, kicking the door as a leg hung against it. At last Vandover heard him. Then, as he caught sight of his face over the door, he raised his upper lip above his teeth and snarled at him, long and viciously. As Haight dropped down into the hall, a waiter came running up. He, too, had heard the noise of the breaking dishes. As he thrust his key into the lock, he paused a moment, listening, and looking in a puzzled way at young White. They have a dog in here, then? They had no dog when they came. That's funny. Open the door, said young White quietly. Once inside, White went directly to Vandover, crying out, Come! Come on, Van! Come home with me! Vandover started suddenly, looking about him bewildered, drawing his hand across his face. Home, he repeated vaguely. Yes, that's the idea. Let's go home. I want to go to bed. Hello, Dolly. Where did you come from? Say, Dolly, let me tell you. Listen here. Come down here close. You mustn't mind me. You know, I'm a wolf, mostly. They went down toward the lick house. Vandover grew steadier after a few minutes in the open air. Young Haight locked arms with him. They went on together in silence. By this time, the streets were crowded again. The theatres were open, and the college men were once more at large. Now they were all gathered together into one immense procession, headed by a brass band in a brewer's wagon, and they tramped aimlessly to and fro about Kearney and Market Streets, making a hideous noise. At the head, the band was playing a popular quickstep with a great banging of a bass drum. The college men in the front ranks were singing one song, those in the rear another, while the middle of the column was given over to an abominable medley of fish-horns, policemen's rattles, and great Chinese gongs. At stated intervals the throng would halt and give the college yell. Dolly, you and I used to do that, said Vandover, looking after the procession. He had himself well in hand by this time. What was the matter with me back there at the restaurant, Dolly? 
he asked after a while. Oh, you've been drinking a good deal, I guess, answered young Haight. You... you had some queer idea about yourself. Yes, I know, answered Vandover quickly. Fancied I was some kind of a beast, didn't I? Some kind of wolf. I have that notion sometimes, and I can't get it out of my head. It's curious just the same. They went up to Vandover's room. Vandover lit the gas but he could hardly keep back an exclamation as the glare suddenly struck young Haight's face. What in heaven's name was the matter with his old-time chum? He seemed to be blighted, shattered, struck down by some terrible, overwhelming calamity. A dreadful anguish looked through his eyes. The sense of a hopeless misery had drawn and twisted his face. There could be no doubt that something had made shipwreck of his life. Vandover was looking at a ruined man. "'My God, Dolly!' exclaimed Vandover. "'What's happened to you? "'You look like a death's head, man. "'What's gone wrong? "'Aren't you well?' Height caught his friend's searching gaze, "'and for a moment they looked at each other without speaking. "'There was no mistaking the fearful grief "'that smouldered behind Height's dull, listless eyes. "'For a moment Vandover thought of Turner Ravis. "'But even if she had turned him off, that alone would not account for his friend's fearful condition of mind and body. "'What is it, Dolly?' persisted Vandover. "'We used to be pretty good chums, not so long ago.' They sat down on the edge of the bed, and for a moment their positions seemed reversed. Height, the one to be protected and consoled, Vandover, the shielding and self-reliant one. Young Height passed his hand over his face before he answered and Vandover noticed that his fingers trembled like an old man's. Do you remember that night, Van, when you and Charlie and I all went over to Turner's house, and we had tomatoes and beer, and a glass broke in that peculiar way, and I cut my lip? Vandover nodded, forcing his attention against the alcoholic fumes to follow his friend's words. We went down to the Imperial afterward, Haight continued, and ran into Ellis, and we had something more to eat. Do you remember that as we sat there, Toby, the waiter, brought Flossie in, and she sat there with us a while? He paused, choosing his words. Vandover listened closely, trying to recall the incident. She kissed me, said young Haight slowly, and the court plaster came off. You know I never had anything to do with women, Van. I always tried to keep away from them, but that's where my life practically came to an end. You mean, began Vandover, you mean that you, that Flossie? Wait, nodded. Good God, I can't believe it. It's not possible. I know Flossie. Wait, shook his head, smiling grimly. I can't help that, Van, said he. There's no denying facts. There's no other possible explanation. As soon as I knew, I went to the doctors here, and then I went to New York for treatment. But there's no hope. I didn't know, you see. I didn't believe it possible. Turner Ravis and I were engaged. I waited too long. There's only one escape for me now. His voice dropped. He stared for a moment at the floor. Then he straightened up and said in a different tone, 
But damn it, Van, let's not talk about it. I'm haunted with the thing day and night. I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you seriously. You know you're ruining yourself, old man. For Vandover interrupted him with a gesture, saying, Don't go on, Dolly. It isn't the least use. There was a time for that, but that was long ago. I used to care. I used to be sorry and all that, but I'm not now. Ruining myself? Why? I have ruined myself long ago. We're both ruined. Only in your case it wasn't your fault. It's too late for me now. And I'm not even sorry that it is too late. Dolly, I don't want to pull up. You can't imagine a man falling as low as that, can you? I couldn't imagine it myself a few years ago. I'm going right straight to the devil now. And you might as well stand aside and give me a free course, for I'm bound to get there sooner or later. I suppose you'd think that a man who could see this as plainly as I do would be afraid, would have remorse and all that sort of thing. Well, I did at first. I'll never forget the night when I first saw it, came near shooting myself. But I got over it. Now I'm used to the idea. Dolly, I can get used to almost anything. Nothing makes much difference to me nowadays. Only, I like to play cards. Look here, he went on, laying out the notice for the bank upon the table. This came today. See what it is. I sold the old house on California Street. Well, I've gambled away that money in less than a year. It seems that I'm a financial ruin now, but... And he began to laugh. I live through it somehow. The news didn't prevent me from getting drunk tonight. After young Haight was gone, Vandover went to bed, turning out the gas and drawing down the window half shut from the top. The wine had made him sleepy. He was dropping away into a very grateful doze, and in a sudden shock, a violent leap of every nerve in his body brought him up to a sitting position, gasping for breath, his heart fluttering, his hands beating at the empty air. He settled down again, turning upon his pillow, closing his eyes, very weary, longing for a good night's sleep. Dolly Haight's terrible story, his unjustified fate, and the hopeless tragedy of it, came back to him. Vandover would gladly have changed places with him. Young Haight had the affection and respect of even those that knew. He, Vandover, had thrown away his friend's love and their esteem with the rest of the things he had once valued. His thoughts, released from all control of his will, began to come and go through his head with incredible rapidity. Confused ideas, half-remembered scenes, incidents of the past few days, bits and ends of conversation recalled for no especial reason, all galloping across his brain like a long herd of terrified horses. An excitement grew upon him, a strange thrill of exhilaration. He was broad awake now. But suddenly his left leg, his left arm and wrist, all his left side jerked with the suddenness of a sprung trap, so violent was the shock that the entire bed shook and creaked with it. Then the inevitable reaction followed. The slow crisping and torsion of his nerves, twisting upon each other like a vast swarm of tiny serpents. It seemed to begin with his ankles, spreading slowly to every part of his body. It was a veritable torture, so poignant that Vandover groaned under it, shutting his eyes. He could not keep quiet a second. To lie in bed was an impossibility. He threw the bedclothes from him and sprang up. He did not light the gas, but threw on his bathrobe and began to walk the floor. Even as he walked, his eyelids drooped lower and lower. The need of sleep overcame him like a narcotic. 
but as soon as he was about to lose himself, he would be suddenly and violently awakened by the same shock, the same jangling recoil of his nerves. Then his hands and head seemed to swell. Next, it was as though the whole room was too small for him. He threw open the window, and, leaning upon his elbows, looked out. The clouds had begun to break. The rain was gradually ceasing, leaving in the air a damp, fresh smell, the smell of wet asphalt and the odour of dripping woodwork. It was warm. The atmosphere was dank, heavy, tepid. One or two stars were out, and a faint grey light showed him the vast reach of roofs below, stretching away to meet the abrupt rise of Telegraph Hill. Not far off, the slender, graceful smokestack puffed steadily, throwing off continually the little flock of white jets that rose into the air very brave and gay, but in the end dwindled irresolutely, discouraged, disheartened, fading sadly away, vanishing under the night, like illusions disappearing at the first touch of the outside world. As Vandover leaned from his window, looking out into the night with eyes that saw nothing, the college slogan rose again from the great crowd of students who still continued to hold the streets. Ra 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 He turned back into the room, groping among the bottles on his washstand for his bromide of potassium. As he poured out the required dose into the teaspoon, his hand twitched again sharply, flirting the medicine over his bared neck and chest, exposed by the bathrobe, which he had left open at the throat. It was cold, and he shivered a bit as he wiped it dry with the back of his hand. He knew very well that his nervous attack was coming on again. As he set down the bottle upon the washstand, he muttered to himself, Now I'm going to have a night of it. He began to walk the floor again, with great strides, fighting with all his pitiful, shattered mind against the increasing hysteria, trying to keep out of his brain the strange hallucination that assailed it from time to time, the hallucination of a thing four-footed, a thing that sulked and snarled. The hotel grew quiet. A watchman went down the hall, turning out each alternate gas jet. Just outside of the door was a burner in a red globe, fixed at a stair landing to show the exit in case of fire. This burned all night, and it streamed through the transom of Vandover's room, splotching the ceiling with a great square of red light. Vandover was in a torment, overcome now by that same fear with which he had at last become so familiar, the unreasoning terror of something unknown. He uttered an exclamation, a suppressed cry of despair, of misery, and then suddenly checked himself, astonished, seized with the fancy that his cry was not human, was not of himself, but of something four-footed, the snarl of some exasperated brute. He paused abruptly in his walk, listening for what he did not know. The silence of the great city spread itself around him, like the still waters of some vast lagoon. Through the silence he heard the noise of the throng of college youths. They were returning, doubling upon their line of march. A long puff of tepid air, breathing through the open window, brought to his ears the distant, joyous sound of their slogan. Ra, ra, ra! Ra, ra, ra! They passed by along the adjacent street, their sounds growing faint. Vandover took up his restless pacing again. Little by little the hallucination gained upon him. Little by little his mind slipped from his grasp. The wolf, the beast, 
whatever the creature was, seemed in his diseased fancy to grow stronger in him from moment to moment. But with all his strength he fought against it, fought against this strange mania that overcame him at these periodical intervals, fought with his hands so tightly clenched that the knuckles grew white, that the nails bit into the palm. It seemed to him that in some way his personality divided itself into three. There was himself, the real Vandover of every day, the same familiar Vandover that looked back at him from his mirror. Then there was the wolf, the beast, whatever the creature was that lived in his flesh, and that struggled with him now, striving to gain the ascendancy, to absorb the real Vandover into its own hideous identity. And last of all, there was a third self, formless, very vague, elusive, that stood aside and watched the strife of the other two. But as he fought against his madness, concentrating all his attention with a tremendous effort of the will, the queer numbness that came upon his mind whenever he exerted it, enwrapped his brain like a fog. And this third self grew vaguer than ever, dwindled and disappeared. Somehow it seemed to be associated with consciousness, for after this the sense of the reality of things grew dim and blurred to him. He ceased to know exactly what he was doing. His intellectual parts dropped away one by one, leaving only the instincts, the blind, unreasoning impulses of the animal. Still, he continued his restless, lurching walk back and forth in his room, his head hanging low and swinging from side to side with the movement of his gait. He had become so nervous that the restraint imposed upon his freedom of movement by his bathrobe and his loose nightclothes chafed and irritated him. At length, he had stripped off everything. Suddenly, and without the slightest warning, Vandover's hands came slowly above his head, and he dropped forward, landing upon his palms. All in an instant he had given way, yielding in a second to the strange hallucination of that four-footed thing that sulked and snarled. Now, without a moment's stop, he ran back and forth along the wall of the room, upon the palms of his hands and his toes, a ludicrous figure, like that of certain clowns one sees at the circus, contortionists walking about the sawdust, imitating some kind of enormous dog. Still he swung his head from side to side at the motion of his shuffling gait, his eyes dull and fixed. At long intervals he uttered a sound, half word, half cry. Woof! Woof! But it was muffled, indistinct, raucous, coming more from his throat than from his lips. It might easily have been the growl of an animal. A long time passed. Naked, four-footed, Vandover ran back and forth the length of the room. By an hour after midnight, the sky was clear. All the stars were out. The moon, a thin, low-swinging scimitar, set behind the black mass of the roofs of the city, leaving a pale, bluish light that seemed to come from all quarters of the horizon. As the great stillness grew more and more complete, the persistent puffing of the slender tin stack, the three gay and joyous little noises, each sounding like a note of discreet laughter interrupted by a cough, became clear and distinct. Inside the room there was no sound except the persistent patter of something four-footed going up and down. At length even this sound ceased abruptly. Worn out, Vandover had just fallen, dropping forward upon his face with a long breath. He lay still, sleeping at last. The remnant of the great band of college men went down an adjacent street, 
raising their cadent slogan for the last time. It came through the open window, softened as it were by the warm air, thick with damp through which it travelled. Ra ra ra, ra ra ra. Naked, exhausted, Vandover slept profoundly, stretched at full length at the foot of the bare white wall of the room beneath two of the little placards, scrawled of ink, that read, Stove here, Mona Lisa here. End of chapter 16, part 2 Recording by Adam Wybray